it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of Consumer Engagement in an Omnichannel World. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajgopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers in-store, online, and everywhere in between. And now, here's Shreem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Consumer Engagement in an Omnichannel World. I am your co-host, Peter V.S. Bond. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and, and uh, co-host, Sri Rajagopalan, and we are entering the sixth part of a six-part series called Living in an Omnichannel World. And our special guest for all six episodes has been Brian Gildenberg of Omnicom. Brian, welcome, and uh, please introduce yourself. It's good to, good to be back for uh, you know, six times the charm. Hopefully, we'll get it right this time. So, uh, so I'm, I'm uh, Brian Gildenberg, the uh, SVG of Commerce for the Omnicom Retail Group. Um, the collection of agencies within Omnicom, the massive uh, you know, global media company that does specialize in retail in all its forms, uh, you know, uh, digital, physical, QSR, uh, telecom, you pick it, we're, uh, you pick it, we'll do it. Um, probably better known to most of you by the trading agencies the brands operate under, which are um, you know, Integer, TPM, Tracy Locke, uh, TMA, um, and uh, Haygarth over in the UK. Um, so prior to that, um, I know many of you from the 23 years I spent at Cantor, uh, overseeing the global retail research practice there. So great to be back for time number six, and uh, it's kind of sad, it's the last one. So, uh, you know, so we'll, well we saved the best talking. for last. Uh, awesome. This is where we engage. You know, what I hear is he's willing to come back for more, so we'll send, we're going to follow Sure, we'll, 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 we'll get this, we'll, we'll get this nailed we'll by part series every week or two. It'll be great. It's oh, great. <laughs> well, we saved the best for last. Uh, for, for Shri and I, we've been talking about engaging in some rank punditry on the industry, and this is our opportunity to talk about predictions for the future of retail. Uh, I know that we all love to do that, and we don't want to be held accountable in the future for it, but it's sure nice to predict where we think things are going to go. Coming from the knowledge captain himself. Yeah, so we're going to get them on the record, and then we're going to we'll come back in a future episode and yeah, that, yeah, see how we'll see how all, see how wrong all of these were. So, all right, so reality or myth? The tipping point for e-commerce has finally arrived. Thoughts? Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by tipping point. Um, but uh, but um, I would say if I if you help me to yes or no, I'd say no. Um, and I know that's counterintuitive and not the message of the day, uh, since everybody's so jacked up about it. So I'll play, uh, I'll play devil's advocate to it for a minute. Um, and not because e-commerce isn't important, um, but because I think that from a shopper point of view, though e-commerce expanded dramatically during the COVID era, as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, not all that's going to stick. Um, so, um, so I do think you're getting to a point where you would have seen an acceleration in the growth of e-commerce, which has been a deeply linear phenomenon. So my objection to the phrase tipping point in terms of from a shopper retailer point of view is that relatively gradual and consistent trends don't really have a tipping point. They just kind of move. So I think that from a shopper point of view, I think that's probably where, where you're going, where you're going to be. I think that, I think the, the growth trend for the next five years will be more linear than exponential. So, so from that point of view, no, I don't think it's a tipping point. From a brand's point of view, maybe. And, you know, decisions that managers make are driven as much by narrative as by reality sometimes. I think the narrative may have changed enough that the resourcing decisions that people are making for 2021 and 2022, which they're making now in the context we're operating in, I think will enable a critical mass on the, on the brand side that might be more acute than the actual shift in shopping behavior. So 
For shoppers, I would say not a tipping point, but that's only because I don't think there ever will be one. I think it's a continuum. I think for brands, maybe. Brian, I think about the uh, the average salesperson in the, or the salesperson in e-commerce is probably losing sleep right now over a hundred percent growth plan that they delivered in Q1 and Q2 this yeah. year and how they have to replicate it next year. Yeah, don't into the budget. Don't don't even get me started on the amount of dumb planning that's going to be done for 2021. Um, so it's like, look, just I mean, if you ever wanted to do zero based budgeting, this is the time because the numbers you're working off of are utterly unreplicable. So why would you even try? Like, I just don't, I just don't get the way companies are approaching this, which is, well, yeah, it's a tough number, but we're going to have to hit it. No, it's silly. You're going to spend a ton of money trying to do something that's just a mathematical coincidence. That's weird. So we, Peter and I decided I get to ask you the coolest question of the six episodes, Woo! which is voice and AI. Okay. Voice and AI, Brian, is it just a passing trend? Or is it immortal to live here forever and everybody better hop on? Um, um, I feel like that little girl gif that, or gif that appears on the internet. Why not both? Um, I think, because uh, I, I, I would say, again, forced to choose, I'd go with, I would go with, uh, with eternal rather than trend, just because, especially AI, um, which is, you know, AI, the, the ability for computers to solve more problems without human intervention is a trend that's going to continue forever. Um, so yes, AI will become a bigger part of that. And it's really all about the problem that you're trying to trying to solve. Um, I think with voice, I think voice is going to end up being one of those things that, um, has some very specific applications that make sense. Um, I don't think it's as transformational a commercial platform as other people do, but that's just my own personal kind of hesitancy. Uh, you know, modern retail Self-serve retail was invented in 1920, basically, in the UK and the US, right? So if you're a Brit, you'll attribute it to Sainsbury's. If you're American, you'll attribute it to Piggly Wiggly or King Cullen, depending on where you're from. Since then, the history of shopping has been a 100-year pursuit of not using your voice when you shop. So the entire purpose of modern retail is to not have to talk to the shopkeeper. So, you know, I've often described, I've often described Alexa as the world's slowest Corona owner, right? I mean, like, what, what are we, what is the, why? I think voice has some very specific applications. I think specifically when over time it gets tied better to screen. I think so often people think about voice in terms of Alexa and skills or in terms of the Google Home Assistant. I think there's two vastly more interesting and important applications of voice. Number one is the enormous quantity of search today that gets done through voice rather than typing, which has a very different syntax to it. Um, and understanding that I think is really important. And second is I do think that eventually as devices move to being voice and screen enabled, the ability to respond to voice without, with something that isn't voice becomes very powerful. I'll just be happy when my Alexa stops activating every time a commercial about Alexa comes on the television. That really irritates me. Yeah, my, my, my favorite is when you have two of them in the same room and one of, one of which hears you say Alexa and the other one of which hears your, hears your response. Like I don't... <laughs> well, uh, I've been in many business planning sessions on brand and retail sides and all too often in the past, uh, after all this tremendous work is done at the last minute, someone says, hey, email the digital team and have them send over their three slides. So are we going to see e-commerce and digital be a serious and important component of business plans going forward? 
Yeah, and I think this is deeply related to the answer to question one, and I think yes, and I think this is one of the reasons why um, I think this tipping point moment will occur. And these things don't happen because they're the right thing to do. They happen because the forces, the forces of change overcome the forces of inertia, right? So, and I think there's enough, I think there are enough forces of change, and in particular, particularly for U.S. brands that are listening to this podcast today, you know, Walmart's going to push everybody there. Amazon's not. And, um, you know, and I think the more you need to get an omni-channel Walmart joint business plan, you're just going to change the way you do joint business planning for everybody because the Walmart team's got enormous gravitational pull. So uh, in that case, yes, I think you're looking at, I think three years from now, that that'll be true at the JDP level. From a strap plan point of view, I just don't think, I don't think the average board of directors is going to be comfortable with a management team that that doesn't have e-commerce as part of its strap plan. I just I, I don't think you're going to get your job to keep your job as a CEO if you can't do that. So. Yeah. Profound statement, Brian. So the so the next one is a, a fact or fiction question, Brian, and that yep. is: Is Amazon really the only or biggest beneficiary of the current pandemic from a retail standpoint? Well, only and biggest are two very different questions. Um, they may be the biggest. They're certainly not the only. Um, and um, and I, I, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. The concentration of the American retail ecosystem is way overblown. Um, and I don't know, most people that think America is a concentrated retail world have never been to any other one. Um, so, you know, if you're a brand, you're like, oh, God, you know, the customers have so much power here. Try Canada. Um, you know, Love lost 55% of the market for a consumables company there. That's a customer with power. Um, you know, in most markets in the world, you have three or four retailers or 80 or 90% of the market. Um, you don't have that here and you won't. Um, the America's too big and too polarized for one retailer to serve all of it. So no, Amazon won't be the only one. All right, another one. Uh, brick and mortar stores, they're done with. We're moving to e-commerce, be it Bopus or home delivery or ship to home? Uh, true or false? Not true, but not entirely false. Um, so, um, and I think you're, I think there's going to be, I think there's a severe economic problem with anything that's what I'll call mall based. So, and I, malls aren't really the primary focus of our type of conversation, but, and that's a different topic for a different day, but uh, yeah, I think mall-based retail's got a host of problems that are going to be very difficult to overcome. Um, so, um, so I'm not sure that malls make a comeback. But look, I think um, you know, I you know, right now, you know, even with McKinsey's most exaggerated and breathless statistic on e-commerce, you're still looking at over 70% of the American retail world that's being sold through stores, and that's with vast quantities of retail square footage closed. So, um, so. I think America is going to be a predominantly store-based retail shopping world for as long as it matters. Um, at some point, it'll stop mattering um, because the integration between the store and the online experience will be seamless, and you're just not going to be able to know or care whether a purchase is, quote, store-based or not. But until that moment, America will be more store-based than digital. All right, I'm going to jump to the drug channel. You know, often the drug channel has not gotten a great deal of pat on their back for... No, we're five and a half episodes into it. I don't think we've talked about it once. <laughs> so so the, I feel the drug channel is one of those in the last three, four months during the current epidemic really picked up its uh, step on digital retail. 
and also became the favorite kind of neighborhood store for most people because most large stores were physically closed or you had to drive to it and you had a shelter in place order and things of that nature. Does the drug channel make a comeback in a big way when all this is said and done? Um, if I had to go yes or no, I would go no. Um, and that's got nothing to do with anything you've just mentioned. It's just you have to remember that what you've just mentioned is a tiny part of a drugstore's business, particularly CVS, where retail is a tiny part of CVS's company. You know, non-pharmacy retail is a tiny part of their retail business. Online is a tiny part of their non-pharmacy retail business. And click and collect is a tiny part of their online business. So yes, the, uh, Peter is very graphically showing the, uh, the um, and look, I, all kudos to them. They're doing nice work and, you know. Let me complete the play. Yeah, it's just, it's a really, really, I, I think the future of the drugstores is so much more dependent on what happens to the economics of pharmaceutical distribution than anything else that I would, I would be, I wouldn't say yes, that this is going to change the drugstore's fortunes materially without massive evidence that something else was happening in the healthcare ecosystem that changed the way that drugstores are going to distribute prescriptions. I think over time, the economics of the prescription industry are going to fundamentally change drugstores in a way that, um, I think they'll end up looking very different than they do now, but that's a different topic for a different audience. Yeah, I think the drug channel uh, could flip the model that CVS built with Target, where Target realized they were losing money with pharmacy, but they needed the traffic draw. And so they sold their in-store pharmacies to CVS. CVS is making money, obviously, off of its pharmacy, but the front of the store, to your point, is a decreasingly important component of their overall business model. And so selling front of the store at Walgreens or, or yeah. CVS. I mean, well, I mean it's, it's basically what Walgreens is doing now. Um, so where Kroger's starting to take over their food section, um, FedEx has taken over what used to be the photo area, you know, with all that stuff. Yes, I think that makes sense for a drugstore, to be honest. The proximity they bring to the table is probably of more value to, more value to other people than it is to the way in which they're choosing to monetize it right now. I see Amazon lockers in every store across the country in no time, in any event. Yeah. So click and collect, it's here to stay and it's gonna be the primary driver of growth within, within e-commerce. I think for grocery, yes, and have always thought that. Um, you know, we talked about this quickly on an earlier podcast. I think, I think American shoppers are far more likely to find a solution convenient when they can determine when they're gonna go pick it up in their car rather than when they need to be home. Americans are car-based, particularly when we start to get back to more normal life, particularly suburban families with kids um, who are the people that buy a disproportionate amount of the groceries in America. That the click and collect model here also economically just makes more sense for the retailers. You know, if you look at the geographic distribution of the United States, and then you look at the model that we always try to draw from from an e-commerce point of view, it's the UK. The UK doesn't look anything like the US from a population distribution point of view. The UK actually looks a lot like a, a scrunched up sideways version of Canada. Um, so the country that the US looks the most like is France um, from a geographic distribution point of view. Um, all of e-commerce grocery in France is click and collect for the same reason that it'll probably be click and collect here, which is just, it's too hard to build a model of last mile logistics that doesn't involve stores here. People just don't live close enough together. So, so, um, so if the stores are gonna be involved, then it's just a, the economic trade-offs between 
somebody being able to use their car out on a variety of errands and bring it back versus somebody having to pay for the delivery piece is just, it's just too compelling the other way. So yeah, click and collect and grocery will be huge. Um, I think for, for other categories that aren't grocery, that'll, that'll, be, a, that'll be a mix. Well, the final question uh, of this entire series goes to Sri and to quote the immortal words of the night at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Sri, choose wisely. I'm honored I get the last word, so I am going to choose wisely. And it has to come with my last one-year theory of the wonderful NACDS down in Florida, Brian, where you and I run into each other every single year for a while. Yeah, and, yep. and the occasional dip in Arizona by Camelback Resort. Yeah. So, and the question, Brian, is I've had the theory that with this shifting focus into digital retail, that there will come a point in time at NACDS where the retailer, as, as most of you know, NACDS, the, the primary purpose is to have the top to top and discuss an innovation pipeline. Right. So is there a world coming up in the next year where the customer, the retailer is asking a brand, if you want to bring an innovation pipeline to me and get it in store, I want to see a test and learn with data that you've already tried it in some limited scale and it's going to work. Um. I'm going to change my answer that I had for this and probably say yes, and here's why. Um, you're going to be competing for shelf space, mostly in all likelihood, with brands that have built a presence somewhere else, either through D2C or through smaller outlets. They're going to have a fact set that comes to the, that when they come to the table that allows them to say, here's, here's what we're doing, here's how it will amplify, um, and here's how we take our audience, which we know, and then attach it to your audience segments and amplify it in a very natural, logical, and digital way. So I actually think, as I think through the answer to this, that I don't think data on innovation is going to be particularly critical. What you're going to need is an audience in order to use the retailer's broader ecosystem to amplify it. And you're not going to be able to have an audience without some sort of activity. I'm not, if I'm a retailer and I have a choice between two brands, one of which has a proven audience with data behind it that I know I can bolt into my ecosystem. The other one has a hypothetical segmentation that isn't tied to any behavior, but is just mapped against some other brand. I'm going to pick the one that's real. Um, so yeah, I think that this ability to, this ability to test and learn, to be able to get to enough data about an audience, to be able to construct an audience well enough be able to bolt it into the ecosystem is the big piece. And, um, you know, as segments become audiences, that's, that's probably of all the things we haven't talked about yet, probably the most profound change that's going to happen to the marketing ecosystem. A world of audiences is a more bottom up world. A world of segments is a very top down world. And I think that can rewire away a lot of the way that innovation takes place. If you thought about what's the audience that's going to not congeal, it's the wrong word, uh, coalesce around, uh, around this brand proposition. And then how easily can I amplify that audience through, through data retargeting and lookalike modeling into a bigger audience? And how do I use the retailer's audience-based ecosystem to be able to do that? So, Brian, what I, what I really take away from that is, you know, if you're walking in with an audience and explaining what the audience is, D2C is really non-negotiable anymore but I don't mean a scale D to C for 50,000 points, competing with 50,000 points of distribution. It's really for this very experimentative test and learn approach. Yeah, well, it's, and it gets back to a, uh, when, uh, 
not we're not talking about media anymore because that was the last podcast but it gets back to the single greatest thing i've heard about media in my entire life which is the old uh, the old chairman of group m erwin gottlieb uh we were in a meeting once and erwin had a way of saying stuff like this it was really profound just offhand he goes hey you know what the whole history of making money in media is when somebody knows more than somebody else and um that observation is so powerful when you actually apply it to the world that we're in now the purpose of d to c for most companies won't be to sell stuff it'll be to be on the right side of what i'll call the erwin gottlieb the erwin gottlieb equation how do i know enough so that in retail media i don't somebody doesn't know more than i do and right now the people that know more than i do are google and facebook who walled garden that knowledge off in a way that creates enormous economic advantage for them and uh, without without knowing something that's going to be difficult that being said d2c propositions that are only built to gather data fail you need a real reason for that proposition to exist sorry i know i probably went over time by answering that but i think it's a really 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 important don't know why i thought it was a must address yeah well brian i think you proved to our audience that uh, you know a lot more about this than Shri and i do and we I, are I so that grateful. I proved any of that, but uh, I, talked more than, I talked more than you did. But well, I, I bow down <laughs> to my mentor. We'll <laughs> agree to disagree. But in any event, we're so grateful to have had you for this six-part series. What a tremendous episode. What a tremendous series. Uh, Shri, any parting words on your end before I go into our closing? Brian, thank you so much again. I mean, we talked a lot about the consumer, about retail. We talked about specific retailers, about opportunities, about where media my favorite topic is going to go. I can't thank you enough. And you're always welcome back in the show. I hope you will come back and we will be in a conversation, the three of us, so we can provide much more value to our audiences, though, whether they listen, whether they read, or whether they watch. Anytime, guys. Peter, as always, thank you. Yeah, we're going to give him tenured professorship in our, in our audience. In any event, Super. <laughs> I remind all of our followers that if you want to see our content on LinkedIn or YouTube, you can follow hashtag Shri and PVSB, that's S-R-I-A-N-D-P-V-S-B. If you want to see a playlist of all our YouTube videos, you can certainly go to tinyurl.com slash Shri and PVSB, spelled the same way as the hashtag, uh, without the hashtag. And if you want to see our podcast on any one of 13 platforms and growing, you can go to tinyurl.com slash CPG podcast. They're all on the screen below. Uh, again, Brian, thank you for joining us. Shri, thank you. And we look forward to our next episode of consumer engagement in an omni-channel world. Until then, Shri and I saying goodbye. Bye, Shri. Bye, guys. Bye. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of 
reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.